Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Uh, I, I, normally, I normally would have a scripture, so I'm going to go to Jude verse 9 in a minute. But I want to deal with the subject of the secret warfare over your destiny. The secret warfare over your destiny. You know, how many of you, how many of you come from a, a town, a background, a family that honestly... They're just common folks, nothing big, no big name, nothing significant. Raise your hand. You're just common folks. Raise your hand if you know what I'm saying. I want you to think about something for a moment before I get into this message, and that is that Jesus Christ came from a town that was so small, it probably had, according to scholars, 400 people living in it. And it was so significant that when they called him the Messiah, one of the men spoke up and said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How would you like to be from a town that nobody respects whatsoever? And I think about that sometimes, and... Uh, I don't want to get into that because I have a message that deals with that in particular about how God is raising up areas and people. But let me talk about destiny for a moment. When you see the word destiny or hear the word destiny, it is the root of the word destination. What is, what is a destiny? There's three things it is. Number one, it's the will of God for your life. Number two, it's the purpose to which you were born. And number three, it is the fulfillment of the plans of God that he had uh, for you from the beginning. I'll tell you a little secret. If you're trying to keep note, I, notes, I bet you I can preach faster than you can write. Just, so, just to warn you in advance. So let me give you three, three uh, statements that were made by David, Jeremiah, and the Apostle Paul. David said this, you knew me when I was yet unformed. And that means in his mother's womb. Number two, Jeremiah, chapter one, before I formed you in the womb, God said to Jeremiah, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet. The Apostle Paul then says in the book of Galatians, God who called me from my mother's womb. That's an odd one. He fought Christians, later became a believer, but yet tells you God called him to be an apostle from his mother's womb. What does that tell you? That tells you that God had a purpose and he was living one purpose, but God had to show up and intervene to reveal to him the original purpose of his birth. So a lot of you can start your life without the Lord and your purpose is not what it is at this present time. And then suddenly you discover the Lord and you'll find out that your purpose that you thought begins to shift into another design or another purpose that's totally different than anything you thought or anticipated. And many times it is simply God aligning himself in the word of God. Jude verse 9, however, has some clues in it. And I want to delve into these clues because it is an interesting story. This story is not found in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, this book, this writing, uh, came from a book called The Assumption of Moses. And Jude is quoting from that. And here's what it says. Yet Michael the archangel, Jude 9, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses and said, Do not bring against him a railing accusation, but the Lord rebuke you. Jude verse 9. This is an intriguing story because let me just explain to you a little bit about what led up to this confrontation between Michael the archangel and Satan. Moses, as you know, was called of God to take the children of Israel, 600,000 men, not counting women and children, early estimate, very limited estimate, 2 million, possibly as high as 2.5 to 3 million people, out of the land of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. The original journey would have taken two weeks and they would have went in and inherited the land. In the process of the way, the children of Israel are in an area where there's no water. Now imagine having that many people with no water to drink. Complaints begin to emerge. And then God says to Moses, okay, I want you to take your rod and I want you to go speak to the rock and command the rock 
to, have, to bring forth water. And the Bible tells us that Moses, maybe out of frustration, maybe out of anger, he hit the rock twice and he screams out to the people before he does it and says, must we fetch you water from the rock? Now, my entire ministry, I heard preachers preach. God did not allow Moses to enter the promised land 40 years later because he hit the rock twice. Now, I want to show you something. Paul says in Corinthians, that rock was Christ. If you know anything about Jesus, he suffered twice. He was beaten with the cat of nine tails. And Isaiah 53 says, with his stripes you're healed. And later was crucified on the cross. Two forms of punishment, scourging and crucifixion. Moses is a prophet. That rock is Christ. He's hit it twice. And I was puzzled by this. I said, literally by smiting it twi twice, it was a picture that the Messiah would be smitten twice, but from him would flow his blood to redeem mankind. So I'm puzzled by the theologians who would say, he hit the rock twice and disobeyed God. So I go back to the story. How many of you know, go back to the story. All of a sudden, when I go back to the story, I hear God tell Moses, you will not go into the promised land because you did not glorify me in the eyes of the people. Then I go back and realize what he said. Here's the quote. Must we fetch you water from a rock? Him and Aaron. He, was, he messed it up. He can't do anything. That's not a magical rod. That's not a wand you wave and puff the dragon appears. This is a stick, a rod of God. But the miracle's not in the rod. The miracle is in the God who's behind it. And he did not glorify God and said, must we, instead of the Lord will produce this, the Lord will provide. And because he didn't glorify God, he was not permitted to go into the promised land. Now, this is where the story becomes very, very, very intriguing because there was a battle for Moses' body. And let me explain to you about the battle for Moses' body. The Bible tells you in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And that word brethren in Greek is those in the assembly. It would refer to the believers or the church before God day and night. Satan is an accuser. Jesus is your advocate, your lawyer, or your high priest. So what does Satan consistently do? If we read the scripture, he consistently wants to approach God to remind him of either your sin or your failure. So here is Satan. He is showing up. Moses has died in a valley called the Plains of Pisgah. The Plains of Pisgah are located between Mount Nebo in Jordan and Jericho on the Israeli side with the Jordan River coming down, separating the two. So Moses is lying there and Satan is saying before the Lord, I want his body. I have the right to his body. Give me the body of this man. Now, this is puzzling. Why does he want Moses' body? And so God sends Michael the archangel, who is the highest angel in God's kingdom, and he goes and Michael starts rebuking Satan and says this. Here's the quote in Jude. You will not bring against him a railing accusation, but the Lord has sent me to rebuke you. What ammo, what secret thing did Satan have on Moses that would give him any legal right to claim the body? And the answer is simple. Hey, God, 
he disobeyed you. One thing. 40 years ago, he disobeyed you. You're not even letting this man cross into the promised land, which shows me he disobeyed you. So since he did not fully obey you, I have the right legally to step in and claim the body. I couldn't have his soul. I couldn't have his spirit. I couldn't have anything for 40 years, but I can have him now. And Michael comes and rebukes Satan. And your Bible says God buried Moses himself. And put him in a place that no man, this is the last chapter of Deuteronomy, knows where he is buried to this day. Herein lies an enigma, a mystery. Why would Satan actually want, what can you do with the corpse? Let us look again at the setting. Mount Nebo, the country of Jordan, the plains of Moab, the Jordan River, the crossing line between two nations. The land of Israel that the 12 tribes are going to inherit. Read your Bible. 12 tribes, two and a half tribes wanted not to cross into Israel and take the land. Read the Bible. Two and a half tribes obtain land on the other side of the Jordan River. You ready for, for this? In the very land where Moses was buried. The very land where God buried Moses was going to be claimed by one of the two and a half tribes who would not go into the promised land, but wanted to fall short. Somebody say fall short and live in the country of Jordan. After they conquered 31 cities, Joshua let those two and one half tribes leave the promised land, cross back over the Jordan River and live in that territory. I'm going to tell you something that I believe. I believe the children of Israel, if you'll read the Bible, they may have come out of Egypt, but they still had Egypt in them. They're worshiping a cow. Within 50 days of coming out of the promised land, they built a cow and they're bowing down in front of it. That cow is an idol god called Apis, Apis, a bull deity that the Egyptians worship, believe this or not, which was supposed to be a deity of agricultural and, and supernatural provision. Israel might have been out of Egypt, but they still had a bunch of bull in them. Mm-hmm. Well... And so, and so the point that I want to make, and I want you to follow with me, what did they do in Egypt for hundreds of years? The answer is in Exodus. They built treasure houses for the Pharaohs. What do you put in a treasure house? A king's treasure. What do you eventually put in that house? A mummy, a body, a dead person wrapped in linens petrified and you lay him in there and you surround them with the wealth and he becomes a monument in a memorial to them. I am absolutely convinced that Satan knew that if he could let that body of Moses be discovered by the tribes, they would say, here's what we need to do. They mourned him for 30 days. A new, a, a normal Jewish mourning is seven days. Then you quit mourning. They mourned Moses 30 days. They would have found the body they would have built a monument, come on somebody, like they did in Egypt, wrapped him up, put him in there, burn incense to him, and eventually everybody would have built the promised land on the wrong side of the river. Now, let us look at the strategy of the enemy. 
Satan is a strategist. I want you to understand this. When he plans something, you think he planned it yesterday because it hit you today. The strategy against you might have been planned at your birth. The strategy against you may have been planned years before it ever happened. So Satan is a strategist, and this is what you have to understand. So I'm thinking like my enemy. If you want to win a war, get into the brain of your enemy. Find out how your adversary thinks. You can, you can beat him. I see Satan, number one, wanting the body to build a memorial to. But why would it be so important to build a memorial, now watch, and have Israel live on the wrong side of the Jordan River? Number one, God swore to Abraham by his holy name. His seed would inherit that land. If you put them on the wrong side of the river, it makes God look out to be a liar. Satan would love to catch God in one lie, but he'll never do it for God is not a man that he should lie. So in other words, if they could go on the wrong side of the river, it would never fulfill the covenant promise that God made to the children of Israel. But wait a minute. It's deeper than that. God said in Deuteronomy, Israel, when you inherit the land, I'll take you to a place where I'll put my name there. God over and over again says, I'll put my name there. I'll put my name there. You will offer tithe there. You will offer sacrifice there. He's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Solomon's temple and Herod's temple stood. It's the place, hang on now, that Jesus had to go to be crucified in the city of Jerusalem to complete redemption. If Satan had been successful, not only would Israel went on the wrong side of the river, not only would they have built their cities on the wrong side of the river, but you hear me? The temple would have been built in the wrong spot. The sacrifices would have been made in the wrong place. And Jerusalem would have been a Jebusite city on top of a hill run by pagans and heathens. And the Son of God would have never gone to the exact location. You got to understand me here when I tell you that Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem and laid him on top of the wood and a ram replaced him and it was Moses that wrote about Abraham and said in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen it had to be Jerusalem it had to be the holy mountain and the devil says I'll stop whatever plan God has by getting them to fall short of the blessing that they have now here is the thing about your destiny your destiny the assignment of God is to do whatever is necessary to connect you at the right time with the right people to do whatever is necessary to get you to the place where you can fulfill that part. It may seem insignificant. However, how would you like to be the preacher that preached the night that Billy Graham came to the altar in North Carolina? Billy has won millions to the Lord and that preacher now has credit. That was the last service of the tent meeting. It was a second altar call that Billy finally answered after the man said, there's one more. There's one more coming. There's one more left. God's dealing with somebody. Where are you at? Billy came to the altar. He went to school one year in Cleveland, Tennessee, where I live at Bob Jones Bible College back then. It was a Baptist Bible school. He was engaged to get married to a woman who looked at him and heard him preach. Billy preached one of his early messages about 15 miles from my house in a little town. The church is still there. And when the woman heard him preach, she broke up with him and said, you're never going to amount to anything. Said that to Billy Graham. I wonder what she thought 30 years later. Help me preach somebody. 
Hey, hey, hey. Oh, I shouldn't go there. I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit in the flesh. But there was a lady, she was rather heavy. And her husband left her and said, I'm leaving you because you're heavy. And she's crying. I said, you know what you need to do? I said, excuse me for being carnal. You need to go on about a year diet, lose 150 pounds, fix yourself up, and go prancing in his office and say, see what you missed? Pardon me, I had to go that way. I just had to be fleshly for just a minute. Now let's go back. (laughs) Come on, somebody. Give me a praise break for Jesus right here for. (laughs) That may be vengeance. I don't know. I don't know. Let's just leave that alone. Okay, forget I said that. But let me talk to you for a moment about this because this is important. Had they fallen short. This is real important you hear this. Had they fallen short, not only would it have affected that generation, but it would have affected generations in years to come. 400 years, a 1,000 years later, temple in the wrong spot. When it came time for Jesus to fulfill the patterns of prophecy from Genesis 22, he would have been in the wrong location. Everything would have fallen apart. Therefore, God... Talk to me, somebody. God had to supernaturally intervene to ensure that the the destiny of this nation would remain intact. Now, here's what I want to do for the next few moments. The Lord took me to this verse in my spirit, and he said, Son, I'm going to show you how the enemy attacks people's destiny and his strategy based on his battle with the body of Moses. If you want to go there, put your hands up and say, I want to go there, preacher. Here we go. Number one, this is this reveal. Now, this is amazing. It's a story that's thousands of years old, but the pattern in it reveals the strategy of the enemy working against you. And here we go. Number one, notice what Satan did. The enemy wants to take your one weakness, your one mistake, and try to use that mistake or weakness against you your entire life. Moses' mistake was 40 years ago. He died after 40 years. And what does the enemy do? He brings up the one big mistake that Moses made. You can't touch the guy's life anywhere else. He followed the Lord and did everything God commanded him to do. But one mistake is brought up 40 years later in an attempt to try to disrupt an entire nation from fulfilling God's purpose. Now, here's what I'm wanting to tell you. Everybody in this building has a weakness. I asked my wife one time because I said, Pam, you you really are. You're about the most perfect woman I've ever met. And I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching to y'all. She's heard me say this. And I said, people ask me, what is Pam's weakness? So you tell me so I can tell people what is your weakness. And without, without blinking an eye, she said, okay, it is chocolate. And my wife will tell you, if she did not discipline herself, she would eat candy bars, four, five, and six of them every single day. This addiction to chocolate became so serious that years ago on a cruise ship, she bought a shirt, and it says it. It's hanging in the closet. I will sell my husband for chocolate. And the bottom line says, and no refunds. And she boldly wore that to a conference. This is a true story that James is a verified. And I get a package addressed to her about a week or two later. And it's that deep and that wide and like this. And it says personal to Pam Stone. I open it because she's homeschooling. It is a whole. I'm telling you every type of chocolate candy that you can imagine is in this box. 
And I'm thinking, what are they trying to do? Overdose my wife with chocolate? And there is a letter enclosed, and it says, Dear Pam, I first noticed your shirt. Then I heard Perry laughing and commenting about it at the conference. Here's your chocolate. Give me your husband. Now, look, me, me and Pam are a cut up. So I say, you ain't going to believe what happened. And, and Pam says, what she look like? I said, I don't know, but I can sure email her and get a picture if you'd like. Because I wasn't sure I want to take her. You get that in a minute. Take her up on that off. Now. Her weakness, she'll tell you, is chocolate. My wife, she'll tell you. She says, I, I struggle with my weight because I enjoy eating. She doesn't overeat. She just enjoys eating. To her, that's a weakness. I have had a battle with depression different times in my earlier life that I finally got over, especially after I was married. But then I have a, a sense of a temper. I have a little bit of autism. And if I'm struck the wrong way, I can go off real easy. That's a weakness. I think it's a, it's a weakness of mine. Now, here is what I'm about to say. Doesn't matter who you are sitting out there, you have at least one weakness. It could be oppression cycles, depression cycles. It could be you have phobias and fears. It could be something to deal with the, the, the flesh that you battle with. It could even be addictions. But what the enemy wants to do, listen to me, is try to take whatever the weakness is and try to use it against you either in your life or throughout your life or even at the end of your life. Now, I'm going to give you something that is extremely important that is just mind-blowing if you think about it. I was with a minister, and we were discussing a, some great men of God who had fallen into different things. And one of them was a very well-noted worldwide minister. This is years ago. And I talked about, wow, can you imagine, had that not happened, he was reaching the world, where would he be today? And this preacher who has a PhD in psychology looked at me and he said, here, I'll tell you something more fantastic than even considering that more amazing. And I said, what is that? And he looked at me and said, here's what's stunning. God in his foreknowledge knew this would happen to this man at this time in his life and still called him to preach. Okay, that's deep right there. You're going to have to think about that. That's deep. Meaning that the, the bottom line is God uses vessels and vessels can get cracks. But the great thing about God is that, oh, Phil, I'm talking to some, I'm really talking to somebody in this house that really needs to hear this. The great thing about God is this, that even the apostle Paul, who admitted in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was attacked by a hindering spirit, he even, he said, in my weakness, the strength of Christ will be perfected. What you need to look at the devil and say is say, devil, I know that I'm weak, but what that does, it makes me more dependent on God. I felt the Holy Ghost fly by when I said that. When you have a weakness, 
If you're a real spiritual person that loves God, it makes you totally more dependent on his grace. It makes you very appreciative of his mercy. Now let me preach to the choir here for a minute. It makes you very dependent of the fact of the blood of Jesus. And it makes you very dependent of the fact that we have a high priest in heaven that God doesn't have to send Michael the archangel to rebuke the devil. That we have a high priest in heaven who will rebuke the enemy. Do you understand how confused the enemy must be if he approaches God on, on behalf of something you have done to make an accusation. But what the enemy doesn't know is you already have asked for forgiveness, placed it under the blood, and move forward in your life. And by the time the enemy accuses you and Jesus looks at the book, the book is wiped clean and the, Jesus says, I have no idea what you are talking about. That's where the amen and the praise the Lord goes right there. So number one, Satan went after Moses over a weakness that he had 40 years ago trying to accuse him. And yet that's a point that we can make about how the enemy operates today. Number two, (laughs) ready? I had somebody ask me, when will the devil leave me alone? I said, I've got good news and bad news. (laughs) Do you want the good news or the bad news first? They said, well, just give it both of them to me. I I said, Here's the good news. There will come a time when you will never have to deal with the enemy again. They said, oh, that's so great. When? I said, bad news is when you're dead. (laughs) So bad. the, 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 (laughs) the, The bad news is he's around. We have to deal with the spiritual powers and we have to deal with them as long as we live until either the coming of the Lord takes place first, which releases you that Paul said from this mortal body or until we pass away and leave this world. Hallelujah. Are you listening somebody? So the enemy is going to battle you with the three T's. Number one is temptation. Number two is testings. And number three is trials. Temptation is pressure to do wrong. Testing is pressure to choose wrong. Trials are pressure to make you give up in the time of a crisis. So there's temptation. It's a pressure to do wrong. There's a test, pressure to choose the wrong thing. You're put under a test like Joseph was. How do you choose? Or like Daniel was, eating at the king's table. Do you choose the king's meat? Do you reject it? Do you drink the alcohol? Or do you do what Daniel said and said, I'm a Jew, I'm a Nazareth, I'm I'm a priest, I can't drink it. You have to make a choice. Then there's trials making you give up. Now, I want to give you some good news. I want to preach this right here. Do y'all mind if I just cut down and do a little bit of East Coast Southern Holy Ghost preaching? Oh, I can talk fast. I believe you know that by now. (laughs) You see, I have had people say, and oh, they're so sincere, and oh, oh, I appreciate the prayers of God's people. You have no clue. When people say, Perry, I'm praying for your protection, I want to say thank you. I would never in one million years ever reject anybody's prayer, mock, make fun over anything. People who are praying for my protection, I need it as much as anybody out there. But I've had people say to me, you better be careful the way you preach. And I said, why should I be careful? Because you're going to make the devil mad. And I got news for you. He's already mad. How am I going to make him any more mad than he's already mad? The Bible said in Revelation 12, he's going to come down with great wrath one day, knowing that he has but a short time. And the great wrath in Greek, the Greek word there is a Greek word for fierce anger till the face goes red and the blood pressure goes up. Satan don't have blood. He's a spirit. I know that. But the point of the emphasis of the word is we're talking about mad, mad. You can't get no more mad than when you're already mad. So I want to come by and give you some good news. Everybody ready for the good news? The good news is in the old 
covenant, God had to tell the devil, you can't take that person's life because Satan had ability at some point of, with the authority of death uh, over death. Because when he was testing Job, he said, you can make him sick, you can put boils on him, but God said, I will not let you take his life. But we come in the New Testament, it's a little bit different. Because the last time I checked in the New Testament, mm -hmm, I found out that there was somebody by the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, better known as the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands up in the book of Revelation, and he's swinging some keys in his hand, and he says to John, I am he who was dead, but I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of death and hell. So I want to get the fear out of some of you. Ready? I'm going to take the fear out of some of you today by the word of God, and that fear factor is this, that you are afraid if you get close to God, you're going to have some kind of a battle. You're afraid of dealing with the enemy because you think he's got more power than you have, but I got good, good, word, for, good word for you, good news for you. Satan cannot take you out before your time if you are a believer. Now, let me add something. You can take yourself out. Addictions can kill you prematurely. Driving like a maniac on the road or falling asleep could take you out prematurely. Flying in a plane with bad engines can take you out prematurely, right? I mean, look, let's face it. You can take yourself out, but there's no way Satan has... I'm telling you, this has built my faith recently. There is no way Satan has the keys of death and hell anymore. The door is opened on Jesus' side and not on the devil's side. Oh, Lord, Jesus, help me. Now, think about this for a moment. Think about Moses. They were trying to kill the firstborn of Egypt, and he escaped in a basket. They put him in a basket. He could have been eaten by crocodiles in the Nile River, but he was not, and he was protected supernaturally by God till he was found by Pharaoh's daughter as an infant. Uh-huh. When he killed an Egyptian, they sought to kill him. They could have caught him and killed him and wrecked his whole destiny. But instead, he fled to a wilderness where he was hidden for 40 days. Mm -hmm. When he sent the 10 plagues in Egypt, not one plague affected him. The darkness didn't affect him. The flies didn't affect him. The frogs didn't affect him. The lice didn't affect him. He was protected supernaturally, standing in Egypt, pronouncing the plagues. Not one plague affected him. When they got in the wilderness and Israel got angry at him for taking them through this dry desert, they said, let's stone him. But when they tried to stone him. It didn't work because they couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't die by stoning. He got depressed one time and he said, God, I'm done. Go ahead and kill me. God wouldn't take him on because he got depressed. He kept living. So in other words, they tried to kill him as a baby. They, they went after him when he killed an Egyptian. The, the, the plagues could have destroyed him. Israel wanted to stone him and he wanted to die. But somehow he lived straight 40 years and he, mm, Lord, I love this verse. And the Bible says that when it came time for him to depart, he was 120 years of age, and here's the quote from your Bible, and his eyes were not dim, neither his natural forces abated. Oh, that, now, 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 now. Now, look, we understand that eyes, not dim part. That means he didn't have to have glasses like Perry Stone. I won't know what the difference between me and him is, okay? But he, didn't, he could see in the distance the promised land. But that natural forces abated is an odd verse. I think in California I can get by with saying what I'm about to say. Moses didn't need Viagra at 120. I ain't even going to follow up on that. That's where you preach and run. You hit and run. 
The man, the man of God, however, the point I want to make is the enemy couldn't kill him. Why couldn't the enemy kill him? Because you can't kill a man who knows what his destiny is and knows it's not yet fulfilled and it hadn't all happened. Ah, see, the devil had four chances to kill me, four chances to affect my life. First time was, was when I was born. I couldn't hold down my mother's milk. I couldn't hold down formula. For two weeks, I'm laying there. My mama could not hold me for two weeks. That's why I say I'm such a huggy, touchy, feely person. Nobody held me for two weeks. You know, that affects your brain somehow. But I want to tell you something. For two weeks, finally, they fed me whole milk. You don't give a baby whole milk. It was the only thing I could hold down. They worried about me that something was wrong with me and I might not make it. He could have taken me out, but thank God for holy cows. All right, here we go. That's the first time. That's the first time that the enemy could have taken me out. Age two, a car accident. Daddy, 55 miles an hour, hits a guy from behind, throws my mama through. No seatbelts back then in 1962. Uh, it, It was a 1962 Comet, I think we were in, and it hit, went into mama's head, went into the windshield. Dad, it bent the steering wheel completely over. That's those old-time steering wheels that they used to have. Some of you remember those. It hit, I, I, I went through, I went into the dashboard so hard, it knocked both shoes off my feet. I was laying in a pile of broken glass. Mama said she knew I was dead. She cried out to God, oh God, she's got a broken jaw. Her head's bleeding. She's busted her kneecap. She's sitting there, and she says in a prayer, oh God, don't let my baby die. When she said, don't let my baby die, my body jerked. She thought it was a spasm that I had broke my back or neck. And all of a sudden I woke up and she, she pulled at me with one hand, pulled me up. And I'm saying, my shoe, my shoe, my shoe. I mean, we have just been in a wreck where we could have been killed. And Perry Stone at age two is wanting those two white baby boots that came off of his body. I'm saying the devil could have killed me right then and there, but God Almighty spared me. Oh, let me preach just a minute here. I came down with meningitis when I was playing football in school and I was a dummy. I didn't know the danger of it. They diagnosed me. They told me to stay in. They gave me medicine. I'm talking about meningitis that my spine was tingling. I was hurting and I wanted to play ball so bad. I took pain pills, showed up at the game and they played me on tight end and defensive end. And when I got through with that game, I thought my brain was about to explode. I passed out on my bed and my mama said, you weren't really better, were you? And I said, no mama. And I feel like I'm dying. And you, if you know anything about this, this meningitis and how it can spread or what it can do, they know more about it now than they did back then. But she worked for a Filipino doctor who said, he's got to stay in, he's got to stay isolated. That night we had a revival in a church and a preacher called me out. I was so sick. I'm four, 15 years old or so. 14, I'm laying on the church pew. I'm so sick. He calls me out, laid hands on me and all of that meningitis came completely out of my body in a second's time and God healed me and I never had a problem with that in that level, in that level again. I'm flying a plane back. I'm not actually flying my pilot's flying a, fl- a plane from Madisonville, Kentucky. 13,000 feet in the air, 20 miles from Chattanooga, Tennessee. The plane goes and it made this weird sound. We lost the right engine. It was a 421 plane. If you don't fail at a 421 properly, you're going to flip and crash. And he didn't know if the other engine was going to go out. We didn't know that a starter adapter had broke off and went into the engine. Three 421s according to the FAA the month of September that month. The starter adapter had broke off, went into the engine and eaten the gears. The gears had already been eaten and we were trying to land this plane. And he said, the pilot said I had, I never sit up on the front seat, never sit on the right side of the, uh, never. I sit in the back with my laptop. First time I can remember. And by the way, I haven't done it since then. I haven't sat in that seat since then, since this incident. But I'm telling you something, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, am I going to die? Is this the night that I died? Does this other plane quit? Is it a, and we didn't know what the problem was. He called an emergency. They said, you can land at an airport. There's nobody there. 
or you can try to make it to Chattanooga. You're high enough to bring the plane down. We didn't know what was going to happen. We called an emergency into Chattanooga, and I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, God, am I going to die? And then all of a sudden, it hit me. Oh, Lord Jesus, I got, the Lord told me to do that, and I haven't done that yet, and the Lord told me to build this building, and I'm in the middle of it, so why would he take me in the middle of it? Because God is going to use me to help pay for it through the ministry, and I got to thinking about four things that the Lord had already told me, and I got to figuring that the word of the Lord was higher than the circumstances that I was dealing with, that 13,000 feet in the air is one thing, but God's word is higher, and I sat there and said, not going to die tonight, and then I got real mad thinking about that one million dollar insurance policy my wife has on me, and now, you think I'm joking, but I got upset because there's an old boy. Oh, I shouldn't even tell this, but there's an old boyfriend she used to date before I married her that's 50-some years old and still not married, and I know what that rascal's hoping for. He's hoping I'll die so he can get my wife, and I'm sitting there thinking there ain't no way I'm going to die and let, let her marry him. I don't even think she likes the guy. I don't think she even thinks she never talks about him, but maybe, just maybe, and I got mad, and I got to thinking about her taking a world-class uh, cruise with Tammy and all those other girls on my million dollars because that's exactly what that woman would do. And I got mad and said, the devil is a liar. I'm getting out of this plane tonight. I'm telling the truth. I had to fight that thing, but I fought it. I said, I'm going to do it. Four times in all seriousness. <laughs> Woo, I better sit down. My pants are about to fall down. I forgot my belt. <laughs> I forgot my belt. I just wanted to tell you that. The pants are going. Get your cameras out. We're about to have a live Facebook feed right here. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let me tell you something. I found out a long time ago, you hear me, that if the devil could have killed you, he would have already done so. He'd have killed you before you ever were converted. He'd have killed you in the drug overdose. He'd have taken you out with alcohol. He'd have put you in a head-on collision. I've come by to tell somebody, if you've got kids that are lost, you need to put them under your hedge. You need to claim the blood of Jesus and you need to say devil you don't have authority I'm a child of God over my family in the name of Jesus they shall live and not die and declare the works of the Lord oh Lord Jesus the third thing the enemy wants to do it's very simple I wrote this note down let me go back to the note the enemy's goal is for you to fall short of any blessing or promise that God has established in your life. You don't, you don't have to mess up. Just fall short. Moses did one mistake, served God 40 years, and was able to see what he could have had. Hello. But he fell short. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us should fall short. It's real interesting that when you talk about sin, people have different misconceptions of what sin is. Sin can mean to miss the mark. It actually is you have a bullseye, you're shooting an arrow, and you're trying to hit that mark. You're trying to be successful by hitting the mark. You're striving to make it. And as you shoot it, woo, it goes off course. That's the imagery that you have in classical Greek when you talk about the word sin or the Greek word, I should say, to miss the mark. So Satan would have a person to fall short when God would have you to press on. Come on, are you listening? The other thing I want to share with you that I've learned from this story is the enemy. This is number four. The enemy can be silenced by the presence of God. 
Michael is an angel that lives in God's presence. Michael the archangel. And when Michael shows up, his, the presence of God silences the voice of the adversary. Now, three powerful principles. I'm almost done, but I want to go through these quickly because I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot preach this word to you without giving you these three principles that the Spirit of God gave me as we talk about the destiny. When we encounter destiny detours, and that's what I call them, destiny detours, you get a job and you say, oh, my Lord, I knew I shouldn't have taken this. It didn't feel right, but I did it anyway. I'm stuck. And you know you're stuck. You're in a relationship with someone and you're about to get serious. And somehow in your gut, you're saying, man, this is not the right person. But man, how do I get out of this one without hurting someone? And it, the craziness involved. It can, we, we, can, we can go through all kinds of detours that people have in their life. But let me say this. There's three powerful principles. All of these now I can take these from the story of Moses. Number one, the principle of warring angels. That God in the Bible says in Psalms 34, 19, the angel of the Lord encamped round about them that fear God and delivers them. I'll tell you a true story. We got time for this. This is, this is the last day I'm with you. So bear with me because you need to hear this. Years, uh, several years back, we built OCI ministry and I had a wonderful uh, pa a pastor, uh, Mark Casto, a young man who uh, we put him over the pastoral part of the ministry. We, we, he preached quite a bit. I preached maybe one time a month, uh, twice a month. And so... After a while, the Lord spoke to me in a hotel in the month of May. I'm just writing, minding my business. This is how the Lord speaks to me. It's never like I was on a 40-day fast, and when I come off the mountain, I heard God. You know, mine is I went to the bathroom and took a shower while I was shaving. The Lord spoke to me, you know. I mean, it really, it's weird. It's like he speaks to me at the most strangest times. And I'm just typing, and I hear the voice of the Lord say, you're not doing what I told you. And I sat back and stopped. I heard it. And I said, Lord, I have. I've built this building. You've paid for this building. Uh, we, we're doing this. We're growing. He said, no, I told you to father a generation. And you're, you're loosing yourself from that responsibility and said, I, I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, you go take full charge of that ministry. You start preaching there and ministering to those people. And I said, God, Mark loves to minister. He's the minister. He's the pastor. He's doing most of the preaching. And I'm arguing for a minute. And then I realized, no, this is what the Lord's telling me. And it dropped in my spirit. How many of you know it's different when it's in your head and in your spirit? In your head, you reason. When it drops in your spirit, you're convinced. So I said, how am I going to tell Mark? So I go back and Mark says, he called me Papa P. He said, Papa, I got to talk to you. He said, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. I didn't even want to talk to you about this because I'm so afraid that once I tell you this, you're going to be upset. I said, what is it? He said, the Lord has told me to step down as pastor. This is crazy. This happened the same week. Step down as pastor, and I'm supposed to move to the Carolinas and start the circuit riding ministry and work with uh, some other folks. And I said, Mark, you will not believe what I'm about to say. When I told him what God told me in line with what God told him, we just, we just started crying. All right, I said, this is crazy. I said, the people's going to be disappointed because the people have been, you know, have heard your ministry for years. He said, well, don't worry about that. We have to do what the Lord says. I said, I totally agree. So the next day it hits me. I have got so much to do. We're having, we have an ISO International Bible School we're trying to start on the internet. That's a full-time job. VOE is a full-time job. Running OCI is a part-time full-time job for me. And it's like, I, guys, am I telling the truth? I never get a break. Am I right, Robbie? Raise your hand so you'll let Thank you, sir, for raising your hands. After I told you to raise your hand, thank you for raising your hand. <laughs> all right? And this, is, this will apply to some of you. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, a heaviness hits me of like Perry... You, you're not going to have a life. You're not going to have a time to spend with your family. 
Look at you. Every Tuesday, you're going to have to start preaching. Thursday, you're going to have to be at prayer meeting. Then you fly out Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You come back on Monday. And I'm just sitting there depressed. This happened. I'll put my hand on this Bible. This is God's word. I'm minding my business. And into the door behind me, it never opened. I heard, I heard this little, like a breeze. And an angel of God came and put its hands or wings, whatever it was. I didn't see it. I felt it on my chair. And when it put its hands on my chair, my whole chair turned into electricity. And the power of God hit me. And two things happened at once. All the weight of the responsibility came totally off of me, out. I it's, like, it's like somebody taking a 100-pound backpack and saying, give it to me. Whew. All the weight lifted. And I started weeping uncontrollably because I was in the presence of an angel of God. And I remember I sat there and the Holy Ghost got stronger and stronger and the only got stronger. I started laughing. I was crying. I was laughing. I had my hands raised. And I did a crazy thing. At age 18, I saw an angel coming out of a wall at the Church of God camp meeting in Virginia. It scared me so bad. He started forming in three dimension. I jumped down and said, no. And I snuck back up to see him. And he was gone. And my dad said, you should have never said no. Well, what I should have done, I should have basked in that thing for about two hours. I'd have probably had some great revelation come to me. And I, it's about 10 minutes. I don't know. 50, I don't know how long it was. And I got so excited that the burden had lifted, that God gave me a word, that I jumped out of my chair. I jumped out and ran to the building. Probably went to Tammy's office first, screaming, an angel is here, an angel is here. She said, Where? Obviously, he didn't show up in that office, okay? So she would have known if he'd have shown up in that office. Then I go up to the front, and I tell Jessica, I said, yeah. And I, and I thought later, I said, why didn't I just sit there? What he was doing, remember this, in Daniel 11 and 1, when Darius the Mede came to Persia, he needed help. And the angel of God said, I stood to confirm and strengthen him. That angel, don't know who he was, but boy, he was there. He confirmed you did the right thing. He confirmed it, and he strengthened me. And can I tell you, that was a long time ago, but I have never had a weight about carrying that OCI ministry since that day because God supernaturally took the burden for, from me. Amen? Took that weight off of it. Number two, the principle of rebuking the enemy. Notice that Michael rebuked Satan in the name of the Lord. Jesus rebuked a storm. He rebuked the devil. He rebuked a fever. And he rebuked people for unbelief. Rebuke in Greek means to censor or forbid. So the authority of the name of Jesus has to be used to censor or forbid the enemy from doing certain things. When demons would speak out, when Jesus was casting them out, he rebuked them forbidding them to speak because no truth can come from a devil. I was with some people one time and somebody was really possessed and they wanted to say, how old are you? Where have you been? What's your name? I said, shut up and get the devil out of that person because it's going to lie to you. It's going to tell you, you know, it's Vincent Price or something when it's not. I mean, it's going to lie to you. Demons lie. But Jesus, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. So there's rebuke. <laughs> Now, Kirby, don't start laughing too hard because I'll, I'll have to stop. Rebuking the enemy is to forbid. And then there's resisting. Now, rebuking is done with mouth. Watch this now. Rebuking is, Satan, I rebuke you. That's with your mouth. Resisting is done with your actions. Because if you rebuke him, you rebuke him, and your actions are contrary to the rebuke, well, it didn't do much good. You're going, you're going, as we said in the South, you're going to buke him and he ain't going to buke. 
Just a thing, folks. Just a thing. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Classical Greek, the word resist is a Greek, a Roman military term that means to strongly resist an opponent. Resist is not just a word you say. You don't say, Satan, I resist you. You say, Satan, I rebuke you. But then resisting is not doing the direction he would have you go. Resist is not a word. It's a position. It's a, it's a stance. It's a refusal to follow. So remember, you can call on angelic help. I say this very sincerely. God, you have messengers. Help me. Help me. Help me with this. Strength. I need some strength. And I've had it happen. I can count on one hand in my ministry when angels actually showed up. My wife and I saw the eyes one time in a room that was totally dark. It was abs- Jensen and I in Romania, his kids. Now, you all know this story. We had an angel walk in the room and light the whole. Jensen never told that here. Lit the whole room up, man. Lit the ho- We're talking about missing our wives. He'd never been away from his wife. Look, that boy was in bad shape. I'd been away from Pam. He's, I just miss her so bad. I just don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to last? We're talking about our wife. We're talking about our honeymoon. We're talking about how hot our wives were. And the angel shows up. <laughs> I'm not telling you he showed up because of our conversation. We were husbands talking about our wives. But I'm telling you one thing. When he showed up, Holy Ghost hit Romania everywhere we went for the next six days. It was unbelievable. Anyway. So, number two, rebuke the enemy. And number three, the principle of the covering. Now, watch this. I love this. This is important. When Moses is lying there and Satan wants the body and Satan is rebuked, what does God do? God then takes the body of Moses, puts it in the ground, and puts a covering over it. This is so cool. Where nobody can ever see that corpse again. You say, what's that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. The enemy don't want any of you to understand what I'm about to say. The Bible talks about forgetting those things which are behind and reaching for the things that are before. I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. God says, ask me for forgiveness. Then in Isaiah 43 and 25, I will remember your sins no more. Here's the point. When we go under the blood of Jesus and we believe it and we've asked him for forgiveness, God Almighty puts a covering on us that no one can bring up what's dead in God's sight. There's three, there's three things that you need. Number one, you need a covenant with God. That's a relationship. If you do not have this morning a covenant with God, how do you enter into that? By coming to Him and asking Him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. By following. Number two, Romans 8, come out from under condemnation. Conviction is the Holy Spirit telling you you did wrong. Condemnation is the devil telling you you're, li- you're wrong after you've been forgiven. Condemnation hinders your prayer. You've got to know who you are in the Lord. And number three, you need to walk out of the darkness into the light. You need to stay in the light that shines upon your path. In closing, I want to give you the most remarkable conversion story. This this was not in our ministry. The greatest conversion I think I've ever seen is Robbie's dad. And I won't go into that. Clyde Thompson. Maybe you've never heard of him. Mm. He never went to church with his family. His family were, were good Christian people. But he would go hunting every Sunday. 
And he would stay hunting all day until the family got back in church and ate and everything because he didn't want to see his parents or hear his parents talk about church. And they started noticing that he developed a really negative attitude toward God, church, church people, Christians. One day he went hunting and there were some other men there and he got mad at those men and killed both of them. They were hunting with him. They charged him with murder and sent him to Huntsville, Texas. Huntsville, Texas, I preach there every year, has four uh, prisons there. Uh, High-level federal prison, and some are not. You know, some of the guys are out walking around, but they still can't leave the prison compound. So they sent him to there. They so check this out. They sent him to death row. They sent him to death row. While on death row, he kills two men in the prison. He was so uncontrollable. They've never had a prisoner like him in the history of that prison. They took a morgue and cleaned it out, put bars around it put him in it and all he was allowed to have was his underwear on nothing else they had a little window that they would bring him food and a little in that little window light would shine six hours a day all he got was six hours and they stuck him in there till he would die till his till, till he would die or he would face the death penalty the four-inch square where the light came in, the guards could look through. And every time a guard would came through to check on him, he would spit through the window. He was not insane. He was demon-possessed. One day, a guard had a little bit of mercy on him and said, Mr. Thompson, you have nothing in there to read. You read nothing. If I give you a Bible, will you promise me that you'll read it and not tear it up? You promise me you won't tear it up. And he was so bored, he said, well, give me a Bible and I'll read it. During the six hours where he could sit near the window, he would read. And then when the darkness came, the, the rest of the day, he would try to recall everything he read by memory. He got to the point where he could quote entire chapters of the Bible word for word. All of a sudden, without a TV preacher, radio, television, just a Bible, he, the guards started noticing a change. He was friendly to them. He was saying thank you. He was kind to them. They would come and bring the food, and he would talk to them about, you won't believe what I read last night. And months and months and months, and a long time goes by, and they finally say, I think something's happened to this guy. They release him from that morgue building and put him back on death row. He's witnessing to all the men on death row. They're so impressed by that, guess what they did? They put him back in general population. He was so changed from reading the Word. His life was so transformed that when the chaplain came in, he said, can I be your right-hand man? He started being the chaplain's right-hand man, and they gave him a lifetime of parole where he had to check into the prison. Check this out. He eventually became a director of a ministry in Lubbock County, Texas, the largest jail in Texas, and began a chaplain's program that he was over until he died in 1979. A believer transformed by one thing, simply reading the Word of God. Is that not amazing? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.